Welcome to Brilliant in 20, a new podcast from the Scoop News Group and Emerald One, where we celebrate the unique brilliance of today's leaders and share their greatest lessons with you in just about 20 minutes. Hi, I'm Laverne Council, CEO of Emerald One. On this episode, we're featuring part two of my conversation with Bridget Heller, a global leader, board member, and now CEO of an educational nonprofit she founded in her mother's honor. If this is your first time joining us, make sure to go back and listen to part one of our conversation. We begin this episode discussing some of the success factors Bridget noticed as an executive with companies like Merck, Kraft, Johnson & Johnson, and Danone. Were there any qualities um, that you can attribute to being a female that helped you be more successful globally than, than not, or being African-American that helped you be more successful than not? Yeah, so I think this notion of vulnerability uh, definitely came a lot from being both, uh, but especially, honestly, from being African-American, because when I walked in, so I, I always say two things about this. One is, you know, people always ask me the question about being a working woman. Oh, how is it being a working mom, a working woman? Oh my God, you know, how are you able to balance the working woman thing, blah, blah, blah. And I, I always found it, initially I found it a very funny question, a very strange question, because I, I don't know about you, but as I grew up, every, every woman I knew worked. Oh, I knew, yeah. <laughs> exactly, it was what I knew. So I, I grew up in an in a African-American community in a segregated South where every woman worked. And, and so the idea that I was working in a job that didn't require the level of sacrifice that most of the women that I saw growing up uh, were required to give the, their jobs, I felt incredibly blessed as a working woman. So the idea of not being a quote unquote working woman never really crossed my mind. I never really thought about that as something. As an option, yes. Well, maybe it was, maybe, but I didn't know it was an option and I certainly didn't aspire <laughs> to it because yeah. the other piece of that was if you, aspired to do something like that, then you might actually lose your skill set. And down the road, you know, as your as your grandmother, my grandmother used to say, girl, you might be able to, uh, you don't know how long you're gonna be able to keep a man. You need to always have your skills ready, yourself. ready right? Because you don't know. You don't have to walk out on that man and be able to feed those children, right? So that's, again, that's what I grew up with. That's what was always the, you know, that was always the, the lay of the land. So I think that the fact that I never really worried as much as many of my peers about this whole sort of working woman image, you know, I just, I just, it just never was a thing for me. So I didn't, I didn't have that. I didn't have that burden of, yeah, this is my image. You know, I didn't have that. So I didn't know. And then I think the other thing about being honestly African-American and, uh, and perhaps even being female, but definitely more African-American in my view. And this will sound, this may sound a bit racist. It may sound a, a bit, uh, maybe even a bit sad, but the truth is that because I grew up in a segregated South for most of my uh, childhood, when I went to work, the fact that you know, people did things that ex that seemed to feel that seemed to convey that they felt I might be stupid. 
That actually wasn't new to me. <laughs> so I actually felt that was a huge advantage. Uh, so I loved the fact that often when I walked into a room, I was way underestimated. Yeah. You know, people would, people would be like, oh my God, she can add, you know? <laughs> So of course I can add. I've been like adding since I was six. Yeah. Of course I can add, you know. Uh, I kept my grandfather's, you know, uh, I did bookkeeping for my grandfather from the time I was 10. So of course I could add, you know. <laughs> it was like, this was just an amazing thing. So the fact that people would underestimate yeah. was, yeah. it always just blew my mind. Yeah. But it was, uh, it, it, I have to acknowledge the fact that it sometimes served as an advantage. And I think that it's an advantage. It was a catalyst, right? It was a catalyst. Like, I, you know, I know you don't think I got this, which is great. Yeah. I got this. And yeah. not only do I have this, but um, yeah. it's going gonna, it's gonna to inspire you to do better. Exactly. So when I would do, when I would do what was my best, it was viewed as miraculous. <laughs> uh, granted, I do believe my best was very good and often better than peers. Yeah. Sometimes as good, but often better. Yeah. But miraculous? <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> you know? uh, so it was that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's fascinating. People will ask that question and I often say, I always knew I was a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, especially traveling abroad, I was an American woman. Yes. Which was fascinating too. Um, yeah. Because uh, the, the racial aspect changed. Um, the gender never did. Mm -hmm. And then going to other places where race was important, um, you know, as a black woman first. Uh, so it's, it's, it's always um, not having that consciousness take you away from who you are. Yes. Um, but being conscious enough to use it as an advantage but also being conscious enough to understand what people need to understand about you in yeah. order to develop the kind of respect they'll need to trust you and to enable your business growth abroad. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's always a handful. And I always tell people one of the things I always did because I thought it was needed was when I would go into a foreign country, I would set up a breakfast with the women that worked yeah. on the team. Yeah. Um, uh, just because they needed, I wanted to give them access and I also wanted to give them a voice and I also wanted to understand what it was like for them and what could I do to make sure that they were given an equal opportunity to succeed right. because otherwise they, and many of them would say, I never meet a woman leader. I've never met one ever, you know, and so this is great motivation and and I'm happy to say many of them have gone on to do really great things. So yeah. I'm always I proud. Would say I found that to be true because honestly, being black and being a woman already makes you an inclusive leader, or at least it makes it, it sets the expectation. Yeah. You want to give a Sometimes you want to give the expectation. Yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> but it does set the expectation of you as a more inclusive leader. And so for me, it's been really interesting to, to sort of watch that because I will say I've had that experience with, um, with definitely with women. I, I always want to, again, one of my first conversations, my first town hall in Amsterdam, and she'll laugh if she actually hears this podcast, but uh, was a Dutch woman. The Dutch are known for being very direct. Um, and so she said to me, 
in a very direct way, and I was still learning the culture, well, you know, you are a black American woman. What are you going to do to make things better for women at Danone? And I was like, well, first of all, you're absolutely right. I am a black American woman. How observant of you, you know? And then I said, I don't really know. I don't really know how things are yet yeah. for women as uh, at Danone. But one of the things I can promise you is that I'm here to listen and find out and then we'll make a plan but you know what you have just designated yourself as my point person if <laughs> you do that right because you raised the question yeah you have an interest she's a great point person in doing yeah. that yeah yeah when you see the interest that means that's your project exactly <laughs> but the other piece i found was that it wasn't just for women right so uh people of color really gravitate toward you, whether it's honestly, whether for me, whether it was American, whether it was um, African, whether it was uh, Indian, or even some Asians, they gravitate toward you when you're working in a culture that's primarily either Anglo or uh, Franc, you know, in our, in our case at Danone, you know, sort of a very French type of a culture, they, they really do gravitate to you um, if you, again, create that transparency and that vulnerability, that openness, they gravitate toward you because they feel different. They feel extremely different mm -hmm. in that culture. And so they gravitate to you to express that um, and to almost anchor and validate, right? And so that, I feel, was where my role was sort of most important operating in cultures where again there were people who were different yeah having the ability to validate their experience was really really important yeah i i, I can totally um understand that and i can remember how important it was for people to understand that i was a mom and how thrilled they were when they found out my mother lived with me when she was living yeah that meant in certain cultures that was really Yes. So respected, Absolutely. you know, um, and they didn't think Americans did that, you know, yeah. and yeah. so they, they really valued who I was as a person. And yeah. it really helped me in leading people by being open enough to talk about who I was, um, not just what I do. Yeah. Right, but That's who that I vulnerability. And in yeah. some cultures, you know, uh, you know, they just, it's almost non-existent. And I often wondered whether it was because they wanted it that way or because it just was. And so you would, you know, you would respect the culture, but you would also create the opportunity. Yeah, yeah, I totally get it. Well, thank you, Bridget. I want to shift gears a little bit and, okay. and talk about the Shirley Proctor Fuller Foundation. Mm -hmm. um, you're on a mission, you're on multiple boards, you're a busy person. But this foundation, I know this is your guiding light um, and you have a goal. So talk to me about the critical drivers and, you know, what are you really trying to do with the foundation? And then talk to me about boards, because everybody wants to know how to get on the board. Talk to me about Shirley Proctor Fuller Foundation and then talk to me about your leadership and what that means to you and your board engagement. So let me actually, yeah, I'm going to try and inter intertwine it uh, or weave it in. Uh, I actually um, 
from a board perspective, I had my first board actually when I was at Kraft. Uh, it was a private company board. And I was approached by a gentleman who asked me if I'd ever thought about it. He thought I would bring sort of great perspective. And it was consumer perspective that they were looking for. So I think the first lesson, and it's always been consumer perspective, uh, ever and on every board since it's been some other things as well but but definitely that consumer perspective has yeah. been a driver yeah. um, and so I'd say that the first thing you do is again treat the board or the board room that you're trying to get into as your consumer and say what do I bring to that table what do I bring to that party right, right. and so figure out what it is you have to offer um, and then Interestingly, figure out if there are a few target companies that are within your space or your realm that could really benefit from it and then begin to navigate your way into those things. So that's, that's actually one of the ways in which it has worked best for me to figure out sort of, you know, geez, those people are really in need of consumer perspective. Yeah. But then as I did, you know, I did that early on and I also did not-for-profit boards early on so I did you know the local family services board I did um, you know the big or the uh, girls incorporated board you know I did not-for-profit boards that got me great exposure to people who were working in for-profit boards yeah. and so those are the two tips I would give to people as you think about board work and how do you get it yeah. um, and, um, and then the final tip I'd give is that you have to let people know you're looking. You have to, if you're at that senior level or at a level where boards are truly uh, viable, for-profit boards, you have to let people know you're looking. You know, you have to let people know it's something that you're interested in, particularly, and people don't think of this, but particularly let your boss know. So if you can get your boss to say, yes, I support her for a board, wow, a recruiter is all of a sudden very interested, not just because your boss is supporting you, but because, wow, if he can place you, then maybe he can get in with the boss. So there's a little, <laughs> so there's a little bit of that. So that was, that's one tip I'll give you. Now, um, when, you, when I moved to the Shirley Proctor Puller Foundation, uh, this is uh, most definitely a labor of love. <laughs> I will say that. Um, you know that I was extremely close to my mom. Uh, my mom passed away in 2013. She had been an educator for uh, almost 40 years, so 35, 36 years. And um, she'd raised us in what was at one point this very close-knit little African-American community that then went through integration uh, and this thing, this whole thing. And as a result, in the years since I've left, and I left here in 1983, integration, or no, I'm sorry, I left here in 1979, integration did not happen here until the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. So just keep that in mind. And from the, the point of integration in the, let's call it early 70s until probably 2015, I think they looked at, the schools had gone through a whole bunch of, you know, sort of change. But the net of it was that the schools in the community had really lost their way and had become the most horrible places to be educated in the state, actually, if you were African American. So we have actually the worst performing school in the state is a school that I went to when I was, when it was first integrated. Mm. And so um, 
My first integration school is now the worst school in the, in the state of Florida. Wow. And actually of the schools that I'm working with, probably um, there are five schools here that are on the bottom 300 list in the state of Florida. Wow. And that's, a, that's not a good list. I mean, it's a horrible thing. And my mom sort of saw this long before any of us did. So she started to really wrangle my family about the need to invest in uh, the children in the community because she felt like we'd lost a couple of generations in terms of the emphasis and the focus on education in terms of the quality of education that they were receiving. And that if we weren't careful, we would now lose more generations and we would never be able to turn around the um, to turn around the sort of fate, if you yeah. will, or the trajectory of African Americans in this community, and to have them become in mass contributors from an economic perspective yeah. to the economic health of the city, right? And if you're not a contributor to the economic health, then you are not a player in the city or the county or the state. And as a result, things get done to you. You don't do things. Uh, right. You don't do things in concert with the leaders. Yeah. And that was, that was her, you know, her biggest thing. And so, you know, when she passed, my brother and I and my father and many people in our family decided, okay, we're, we're going to try and do something. I then did the research and actually shortly after I did the research and concluded that she had a very good point. She had great, great reasons to believe what she did. There was a great article that came out in 2015 called Failure Factories. They literally labeled these schools and this community as failure factories. And they said it was the single worst place to go to school or get an education if you were an African-American child. And so that really hit home. It really uh, disheartened everyone. We then, you know, we had been working on a from a foundation perspective to decide what we were going to do. So our mission truly became to advance literacy, which is at the core of the education, um, and help close the achievement gaps for children in this community. And uh, it's a it's a community that is sixty two percent African American. In a, in a county that, by the way, is only 18 or, or not even 18, probably 13% African-American. It is a uh, county where, or it is a, an area where literally 42% of the children uh, between uh, under 18 live in poverty. And so those kinds of statistics really speak to the underlying sort of issues that the children can't control. It's everything you've heard about if you grow up in a certain zip code, you know, you have the least chance of getting a great education. So net net, we decided to first focus on um, summer learning loss because um, most educators realize that if you are, um, if you're out of school for two to three months, which becomes a big issue now with the pandemic, but if you are out of school for the summer, as you're out of school for, as kids are out of school for the summer, what happens is children from higher socioeconomic backgrounds tend to go to some sort of extracurricular programming that yeah. advances their education yeah. and keeps them engaged. Whereas children from lower socioeconomic uh, traditions 
tend to not have that same uh, exposure or same, uh, you know, sort of uh, opportunity. Yeah. So we decided we would give those children that opportunity and therefore stop that summer slide or summer learning loss. It's typically 12 weeks of learning loss for mm -hmm. children in that type of situation. And so if we could stop that 12 weeks of learning loss, we felt we'd make a huge contribution to closing the gap. Right. So we, we actually surprised ourselves in that we've had this camp now for the last four uh, four, four years, and in each of those four years, more than 80% of our students have suffered no learning loss, which has been Wonderful. phenomenal. Wonderful. And not only that, last summer we had 63% of our students made gains in reading, and 57% of our students made, ga made gains in math. So we wow. were so super excited. Yeah. Um, we've now moved to expand the program to include an after-school initiative, which I'm truly excited about. And we're seeing our kids continue to have that, those gains and you know, to really have those strengths. And we know, we focused on both literacy and we actually focused on STEM, which your audience will be very interested in, yeah. or STEAM as we call it, because we added the art. Okay. There's lots of studies that have been done that shows if you can do the, the uh, STEM plus the art, you really work both sides you of the brain. That brain yes. Critical to us. Yeah. So we really have been uh, leveraging that piece. And the most, the coolest thing about it is actually that when you have, you know, when you're drilling kids uh, for an hour each day in the summertime on reading and on math, and then you put them in a STEM class, oh my God, they love it. They will <laughs> almost go, they, off, they actually will go to the reading and the math just to get to the STEM class. Because <laughs> what, they, what they're doing in STEM is they're putting it all together, they're practicing the literacy, they're practicing the math, but they don't get that, right? They talk about it as, I'm building robots. I'm, you know, really doing these really cool experiments. I blew something up. I got to grow something, you know? That, those things are really the things that excite them and motivate them. Um, and so it is my absolute joy to bring those types of experiences to the children in our community. Thank you for doing this and thank you for doing it. Um, with your mother's name. I had the opportunity to spend time with your mom. She was a lovely, lovely woman, um, exuded everything that motherhood is, but also exuded a great personality. And clearly she was a teacher. She was always teaching, always, um, always teaching, always learning, yeah. um, but always full of joy. So thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you for doing that. I yeah, think she it's so important. And, and um, I look forward to seeing that school turn around and, you know, um, Emerald One will be wherever you need us to be to help you. Thank you. To do this. We, Thank we, you we, have, we have a gift to give. We will give it. Absolutely. So, Bridget, you know, you have my most respect. I want to thank you for giving me your time. Um, you, you, you always are on me because we're friends, but I never take my friends for granted. I don't feel like anyone has to do anything for you. They don't have to give you any of their time. They don't even have to love you. But you've been willing to give me all those things, and I thank you for that. And thank you for being our guest today. It's been nothing but a privilege to learn from you over the years, to laugh with you, and to cry with you. And so I, I so appreciate you. Um, but before you go, I just have one final question I'm asking my guests. What's on your desk that you want to share with us? What do you have in front of you? What, what, what's driving you today? Right now, what's driving me is the, the fact that it is 
Giving Tuesday Now, <laughs> and, which is not something that we had ever heard of, but Giving Tuesday Now is actually a global uh, day of giving that was created as an emergency response to the unprecedented need for uh, funds during COVID. And so in my situation or my case, we've had to make a lot of adaptations as we've moved our children online, uh, which in, uh, again, lower socioeconomic situations where kids don't have typically computers or families don't have Wi-Fi access. And absolutely, people don't, people also forget that our children are mobile. So a lot of times that, you know, the parent is actually not the one that's at home with them. It's a grandparent or, you know, someone of that sort. And so the idea that learning is happening in those environments is actually quite challenging. Yeah. And so just trying to help them navigate that has been, has required a lot of extra resource for us. So we are actually right now doing a Giving Tuesday campaign uh, to ask people to really help us both replenish, but also to um, help us to pay for the funds for uh, camp for kids this year, even as we go back to on-site camp, because families can't afford it. Many of our families have been you know, furloughed or laid off. Uh, yeah. Many of them obviously working in uh, some of the hardest hit industries like retail or, um, you know, the resort industry, the hotel industry, yeah. those kinds of things. And so, yeah, let, let's, uh, let's all pitch in. We're in this together and make so sure. So what do you have on your desk? A can? What do you got? A, 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 I've got a, a, a can. What is it? What's I'm, on it? Okay, I'll show you. Let me see what I can show you <laughs> around that. I've got here, I'll show you this. I've got my fact sheet. Aha, uh -huh, the promo. That actually speaks to all of the learning gains that we've made wow. uh, over time. These are our cohorts right here. And so you can see how they've really made significant learning gains. And that's something that we're including in our, in our uh, Giving Tuesday pitch. Well, that's another sign of a great leader and a pro. You're looking at the metrics that matter. So Absolutely. appreciate that in you. Regardless yeah. of this for the kids, you're still going to make sure that you're doing what you said you do. Have to do that, Bridget, I am so proud of you. Thank you again for being on Brilliant in 20. Come Thank back anytime. Thank you so much for having me. And you know that the feeling is incredibly mutual. I'm honored. I hold such great respect for you, and I'm really, really pleased to have been among your early guests. Thank oh, you. Thank you. You'll be back. Big hugs. <laughs> Big hugs. Bye-bye. And thank you for joining Brilliant in 20, a joint production of Scoop News Group and Emerald One. We look forward to sharing our next episode with you. So stay brilliant.